Today is Palm Sunday, and the service this morning is going to be a little bit different, just to kind of let you know on the front end. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're going to talk about the cross. And in fact, what we're going to do is walk through the final week of the life of Jesus from Sunday to Friday. And it started with an unbelievable scene. I know it may be difficult for you to imagine, but it would be interesting if we could think in our minds back to that day when it all started in that final week. The town had become to swell with people as they came in, flooding in for a big festival, the festival that God had told them they had to celebrate year after year after year in remembrance of how good He was. And they began to flow into the city, and as they did, there were great expectations, but there also was a great tension. Because they were under Roman rule, every time they gathered that many people in one place, the Romans were always keeping a sharp eye on everything that happens. And in the middle of this scene, on the outs edges of the city, comes one riding on a donkey. And as Jesus would ride in on the donkey, it had been prophesied in the Old Testament, He would come into that city that week to the shouts of people that were praising His name. Hosanna! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Palm branches were being laid down in front of Him as He walked into the city. He was receiving the welcome He had so long deserved. One of the things that's interesting to me about Jesus is He always deflected that kind of praise from the crowd. But almost as if He knew this would be the last time He would have it on earth, He received it willingly. And they began to proclaim that God is blessed because the One we have been waiting for has come. And Jesus came right into the city and as He did, they sang praises to His name. This morning, as we begin our celebration, we're going to join with them in welcoming Him and realizing that He comes into this place each and every week expecting us to come and worship Him. And so this morning, I invite you to join with us and to join with those who did so so long ago in celebrating our Savior, celebrating our King. Because right now, at this moment, is a time to worship. I don't know what's been happening in your life this week. I don't know what's happening in who you are or what's happening with relationships or any of that. I don't know what distractions are awaiting when we leave these doors today. But I can tell you this. For this hour, it is a time of worship. And God is inviting us into this place to worship Him in spirit and truth. This morning, will you join us? Will you worship the living King? Will you come into this place and bend your knee? Because now truly is the time to worship. Come, now is the time to worship. Come, now is the time to give your heart. Come. Just as you are to worship, come. Just as worship, come. Now is the time to give your heart. Come. Just as you are to worship. 
One day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. Come, now is the time to worship. Come. Now is the time to give your heart. Come, just as you are to worship. Come, just as you are before your God. Come. One day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. One day every tongue will confess you are God. One day every knee will bow. Still the greatest treasure remains for those who gladly choose you now. Now is the time to worship. Come. Now is the time to give your heart. Come. Just as you are to worship. Come. Just as you are before your And while the week started with people standing in the streets, praising his name, the attitudes in that place would quickly change. You see, one of the things that gets us most worked up as humans is when our expectations aren't met like we think they ought to be. And that week, as people were praising him as he was coming into the city, I'm not real sure what all their expectations were, but I can guarantee you this, they were different than what started to transpire. They expected Jesus to be a conquering hero, a king, one that would come in and raise up a group of people that would fight back against Roman oppression, one that would bring back the kingdom of Israel, God's chosen people, to the rightful place in ruling themselves. They thought that He would be one that would be strong and mighty and powerful, that He would take on whoever came His way. But slowly throughout the week, they began to discover that is not who Jesus is. It began as he went into the temple and instead of talking about the oppression of the Romans, he started to attack the very institution of their temple. The scripture says that he walked into the temple and saw the people taking advantage of the Gentiles there and selling them goods and doing it at a price that was more than they ought to. And it says literally that in his anger, he threw the tables over. The Pharisees and the scribes didn't like that. They had been looking for something to pin on Him and they began throughout the week to get ammunition of different things that they could pin on Jesus. The thing is, none of that took Him by surprise. 
And so as he went from the marketplace back to where he was staying, and as they would travel back and forth each day, he would kind of ratchet up the rhetoric a little bit every day. And on Thursday, he realized that his time was coming to an end. It tells us in Scripture that he gets some disciples together and he says that I desire to eat the Passover meal with you. And he tells them the instructions about how to find the place and how to make the settings. And they go and they prepare. And then he and his disciples come. And in the book of John, it gives an extended account of what happens in there. But it's a fascinating picture of this master, this king, this one who had known the very glory of heaven, stooping to the very lowest part of earth and serving these men. It tells us in Scripture that as he was there, he had the normal Passover meal. And what's interesting about all of the Scripture is that it never mentions the Passover lamb. And that was a vital part of the meal. And I believe they had it. I just believe it's not mentioned because Jesus realized that He was the new and perfect Passover lamb. And as He's sitting around the table and He's talking to those that are there, He begins to reinterpret the meaning of the meal. He tells them, he says, this bread that you're about to take, I know that it has represented the fact that we had to leave Egypt quickly. I know it represents the fact that God came and rescued us in a hurry when our people were in bondage in Egypt. But from now on, when you eat this bread, don't think about the bondage of Egypt. Think about your own personal bondage and that my body has been given for you. And he took the cup and he said, now, I want you to think about not the fact that, that, that this, this cup... It's something we, we drink as a part of this festival. I, I want you to think about the fact that this cup now represents my blood and the blood of a new covenant that has been promised to you where you can come directly to me and because of that your sins will be forgiven. And he gradually began to reinterpret that for them. And in that moment he began to teach them the ultimate lesson that he came to teach. He began to show them the ultimate example that He came to show and He began to perform the ultimate act that He came to do. And when I think about all that He has done for me and I think about that moment when He was with His disciples, one of the words that comes to my mind is beautiful. When I think about Him around with His disciples and they had not washed each other's feet, no one had taken that task. And Jesus gets up and He bends low and He takes the towel and He washes each foot there. I think of the word beautiful. When I think of the hands that blessed the bread and that He broke it, that would just a few hours later be pierced, I think about the word beautiful. When I think of the head that was at that table speaking those words and as people would have been around him and I think about in a few hours they would be pierced by a crown of thorns. I think about the word beautiful. And this morning as we prepare in a few moments to take the Lord's Supper yet again, I would want you to think how truly beautiful it was that Jesus gave His life for us.
And since that night, almost 2,000 years ago, Christians in places all over the world have gathered on a regular basis to remember how beautiful it was that He gave His life for us. It tells us in the book of Luke, chapter 22. When the hour came, Jesus and His apostles reclined at the table. And He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And He took the cup and He gave thanks and took it and said, Take it and divide it among you, for I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on this table. The son of man will be and go as it has been decreed, but woe to man who betrays him. It tells us that at first he took the bread and then he took it and he blessed it. He thanked God for it. He blessed their time together as many of you will do after this service when you prepare to eat lunch. And he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body broken for you. This morning we come to participate in the Lord's Supper to participate in remembering Him because of what He's done for us. If you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus, one who has accepted Him as your Savior, then we invite you to join us in celebrating and remembering how beautiful He truly is. As we take the bread this morning, remembering that it is His body broken for us. Scripture says he took the bread and he gave it to him and he broke it. This morning, as the deacons pass that bread to you, I want you to think about what he has done for you, what our Savior has done in giving his life for you.
Scripture says he took the bread and he broke it and he gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body broken for you. It says after that he took the cup. And this morning, I want to focus just a minute on the cup before we take it. Oftentimes when we do the Lord's Supper, we just move from one element to the other and don't think about the symbolism that is there. I was thinking about this week, all that is important about the Lord's Supper and the bread and the body and the blood that we drink. I was reading a story about Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, that many of you saw about four years ago, came out around this time four years ago. And when it went to Italy, the movie got a G rating. And there were some parents that were a little upset about that because of the violence that was involved. But there was one particular critic that showed more about what he believed about theology than about his children when he said his problem was that he didn't want to see it because of all of the blood. He refused to allow his children to see the film in his words because I want them to have this idea of the spirituality of Christ, not of his blood. The soul of Jesus is important, not his body. He said, I would prefer them to watch the gospel according to Matthew from 30 years ago because it's a very deep movie and you don't see a drop of blood. He said he would see the movie, but he said, I think at times I will shut my eyes just to preserve myself from the blood. The reaction of that critic tells us a lot about the way people think about our Savior and His crucifixion. They want the Spirit of Jesus without the actual incarnation. They want the death without the pain, the sacrifice without the blood. But Scripture is clear that without His blood, there would be no forgiveness of sins. Listen to these verses. Romans 3.25 God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. Romans 5.9 Since we have been justified now by His blood. Ephesians 2.13 But now in Christ Jesus you were once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Colossians 1.20 And through Him to reconcile Himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through His blood. Hebrews 9.12, He did not enter by means of the blood of goats or calves, but He entered the most holy place once and for all by His own blood. Hebrews 9.4, How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness from the acts that lead to death? Hebrews 9.22, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. 1 Peter 1.19, the precious blood of Christ was given. And 1 John 1.7, because if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus. Blood is not a very popular topic in our day to talk about when it comes to Jesus. So here's the reality. Without His blood, you and I have no hope. Without the spilling of His blood on that cross, there is absolutely no hope for you or for me And so this morning, I thought we would dwell on that for just a minute. I remember as a child singing song after song about the blood. I grew up in Dyersburg. Most of you know that. And my grandparents, my grandfather still goes to a small country church outside of Dyersburg called Southside Baptist. 
And I can guarantee you, I didn't know their order of service every Sunday, but every Sunday on their order of service would be one of three songs. When the roll is called up yonder, it was going to be on there. Or count your blessings, or there is power in the blood. This morning, we're going to sing before we take the blood and remind ourselves of what it is that Christ's blood did for us. And we're going to sing a medley of some songs that talk about Christ's blood. And as we do, take this moment to reflect about what Christ's blood has done in your life. And as we do and think about taking the Lord's Supper and finishing this part, may we always remember how precious His blood is. Would you stand and would you join us as we sing about the beautiful, precious blood of our Savior. From Emmanuel's death and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their i
morning if you've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. It's something that you can sing out in the first person. I've been to Jesus. I've been washed in his blood. Let's sing that together. I have been to Jesus for the cleansing power. I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I am fully trusting in His grace this hour. I've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I've been washed in the blood. pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come today and we are thankful, Lord, for sending your Son to this earth. And Lord, this morning as we come to this moment when we participate again in the Lord's Supper, my prayer is that it won't just be another time when we drink the juice. That it won't just be another time, Lord, when we come into this place and we Don't really think about what you've done, but that this morning, Lord, we would remember the soul-cleansing power in your blood. Lord, that we would remember that because of your blood, it has made us white as snow. And Lord, that this morning, as we take this Lord's Supper, that we will take it again, just like it's the first time. And Lord, that we will remember your sacrifice for us. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood. Thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Congregation, you can be seated. And we will now take and remember the blood of Christ.
Scripture says he took the drink and he blessed it and he gave it to them telling this was the blood of a new covenant. A new covenant foretold by the prophet Jeremiah where we could go directly to God because of the blood that he has spilled. He said, take drink, this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, the blood that is spilled for you. Scripture tells us that that night, that after that had happened, that they went to the garden. Now, a lot of times when we do the Lord's Supper, we kind of end there. We end with, they went into the night and they sang a hymn and it, we sing, blessed be the tithe or something similar to that. And as we leave, everybody is excited about the fellowship that is in that moment. But what came immediately after that were not moments of great joy. For they went to the garden and in the garden, Jesus says, I'm going to go pray about this. And he takes a couple of guys with him and he says, the rest of you stay back here, watch and pray. And he takes the other guys a little bit further and says, y'all watch and pray. And then Jesus goes and he prays in the garden. And in that garden, Jesus struggles with the most difficult decision and the biggest temptation of his life. You see, we often talk about the temptation of Jesus as if Satan just tempted him three times and then left him alone. But if you read the end of the temptation accounts, it says that at the end of the temptation that Satan left him for a more opportune time. And Jesus was in the garden. He was kneeling there, praying through what God would have him to do. It says that his prayers got so intense that literally drops of blood like sweat came out. And the whole decision he was making in that moment was whether or not he was going to embrace the plan God had for him and for us. He tells God in that moment, in that prayer, as it's recorded there, that he says, I don't want to do this. If you can, take this cup from me. If there is any way that this can go any other way, I want it to go differently. Lord, I don't want this to happen, but not my will be done, but yours. Sometimes God brings a message to me in strange ways and places. And this week I watched a movie that I did not expect to touch me spiritually that did. It's a movie called Stranger Than Fiction with a guy named Will Ferrell as the star. Now, if you know Will Ferrell, he is not the most spiritual man around. But in the movie Stranger Than Fiction, if you haven't seen the movie, I apologize in advance because I'm going to ruin it for you. He is living his normal daily life. He's a tax guy. He's living his normal daily life. Everything's going all right. When suddenly he begins to hear a voice. And the voice he hears is narrating his life. And so as he's brushing his teeth, the voice is saying... And he counted the brush strokes as he went. And what happens is they start to narrate what's happening, and it happens after the narrator says it. It's a strange movie. He goes on a quest to find the author, and when he finds out who the author is through a long process, he goes and visits her because she is notorious for killing off the main character in her stories. And he asked her, have you written the end? And she said, I've just written a rough draft. Because whenever she typed it, it happened. 
And he said, well, can I see it? And her assistant says, give it to him to see. And he takes it to this literature professor. He gives it to the literature professor. He says, I want you to figure out if there's any other way it can happen than for me to die. The literature professor reads it, brings it back to him and says, she has to write it just as she wrote it because you'll never die in a more noble way. He doesn't understand what's going on. He takes the manuscript. He's still struggling with this. He said, there's got to be a way. And so he decides to read it in one sitting. Kind of the pivotal scene in the movie shows Will Ferrell, the character, walking up to the author, finding her and saying to her, you have to finish it just as you planned. And she says, you know what that means, don't you? He says, I know what that means. But you have to finish it just as you planned. She says to typing out the story, and the next day she types about what is happening, and Will Ferrell's character goes to the bus stop, and he's at the bus stop, and she's narrating this about how that he knows this is the day he's going to die, and he knows how he's going to die, and he gets there, and at the moment that it's about to happen, a bus is coming up to pick up some passengers at the bus stop where he's standing when a little boy's bicycle comes right in front of the bus. Will Ferrell's character jumps in the middle, throws the boy out of the way, and then stands there to be hit by the bus. The literature professor and the author are talking afterwards, and she said, I look for every way possible not to do it, but this had to be done. And she said, what became interesting about this story is it ended up being about a man that knew he was going to have to die as a sacrifice and that he still chose to do it. Susan and I were watching the movie, and I turned to her, and she says, I know. I know. Because, see, that's exactly what happened with Jesus. He didn't hear the voice of a narrator. He heard the voice of the narrator. And as he was in the garden, he was struggling with whether or not the story had to end like the narrator, and he knew it had to end. And as he faced the cross that was coming, the thing that he did in that moment was he just simply embraced it. He looked at it and he said, there is no other way for humans to live. There is no other way for this sacrifice to happen. There is no other way except that I give my life. And so, Lord, I don't want this to happen. Father, I don't want to do this. But because it is your will, and I know it is the best way, and it is the only way, then I will surrender my life and I will embrace what you have for me. You see, the reason that we can stand on this week before Easter and embrace the cross of Christ is because Jesus Himself first embraced the cross of Christ. And when the narrator of all narrators says it's time to go, He just simply went. After the choir sings in a moment about us embracing that very cross where Jesus died, we're going to talk about a couple of things that are important about it. But this morning, have you embraced the cross of Christ? Have you embraced His suffering, understood it in a real way, and what that means for you? Will you this morning embrace the cross?
you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 18. We're going to start in 18 and we'll move to the crucifixion in a moment. Well, this morning, very briefly, I want to talk about three things that the cross did and that Jesus did in the cross. Three things that we can take from this that we know. And you don't have a handout this morning, but you can write it in the margin or write it in your worship bulletin. But I encourage you to write down these three things that God's work happened, that Jesus accomplished in paying on the cross. 1 Peter 3.18 from the message paraphrase says that that's what Christ did definitively. He suffered because of other sins. The righteous one for the unrighteous ones. He went through it all, was put to death and then made alive to bring us to God. Now in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34, we're before the last week really. It's almost there at the last week, but it is here that Jesus predicts His death and tells us really what God is going to accomplish in it. Verse 31 says, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them. It's kind of the the pep talk before they go, the reminder of what's about to happen. He says, we're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over the Gentiles. They will mock Him, insult Him, spit on Him, flog Him, and kill Him. But on the third day, He will rise again. Verse 34. The disciples did not understand any of this. In fact, you might call the disciples the guys that just never got it. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what He was talking about. The first thing that we see in this passage that God's, uh, God's plan happens or what happens in Jesus dying on the cross is first of all we understand that in dying on the cross He fulfilled God's perfect plan. Look what it says. We're going to Jerusalem. Everything that has been written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over the Gentiles. They will mock Him, insult Him, spit on Him, flog Him, and kill Him. On the third day He will rise again. It says before He does it exactly what's going to happen. He tells them this because it has been God's plan from the very beginning. Here is the most amazing thing to me about the cross. is that God planned it before He ever created The most amazing thing to me about the cross is that it was part of God's plan before creation ever happened. You see, some people have this idea that when God created Adam, that Adam messed up and God got taken by surprise and thought, "Uh uh-oh, i got to come up with something. That's not what happened at all. Here's the thing. God so desired to create a people that would be in relationship with Him that He created a people that He knew would rebel against Him, but that was okay because from the very beginning, His plan was that when those people rejected Him, He was going to give His own Son, send His own Son to die for their sins so that even though we messed up, we could still have a relationship with Him. That's how much He loves us. From the very beginning. A couple of passages you can look at to see this is Psalm 22. You don't have to turn back there, just write it down. I'll read a couple of verses from there, but Psalm 22, it it starts in an interesting way because you'll recognize how it starts. It starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Now, you have to realize that when Jesus was around, they didn't have a book like this. They didn't have chapter numbers. There was no such thing as Psalm 22. Now, that doesn't mean it hadn't been written. That just means that that's not what they called it. And the way that if someone wanted to read a psalm in, in the sanctuary, in the, in the synagogue, in the temple, the way that they would announce they were going to read a certain scripture was they would talk about it and the first words of the scripture. And so instead of saying Psalm 23, they would say, everybody turn or remember the Lord is my shepherd. And so when Jesus on the cross says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, he's talking about a very difficult moment when the sin of the world was on him, when God had put all of our sin on his body. But he's also reminding us to look at Psalm 22 that starts with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look what it says about him in verse 6 through 8 of Psalm 22. You don't have to turn there, just listen. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults at me, shaking their heads. He trusts the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Sound a little familiar? Remember the thieves, the guards? He saved others. Why won't God save him? Verse 16 says, Dogs have surrounded me. Gentiles would be the translation. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and they cast lots for my clothing. Isaiah chapter 53 is another one of those verses that that speaks to the crucifixion of Christ. Isaiah 53 talks about... He grew up like a tender shoot before us in the root of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us, nothing in his appearance. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrow, familiar with suffering. Verse 4, Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent. He did not open his mouth. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, no, there was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus says here in verse 31 through 34 of Luke 18, listen, God knew what He was doing from the very beginning. And what's happening here is I am fulfilling the perfect plan of God. It's not an accident. It's not an afterthought. This is God's intention from the beginning. This is His perfect plan. And in the cross, we see that. Here's the second thing that He does. He accomplishes God's saving work. Turn a few pages over to Luke 23. In Luke 23, verse 44, it tells us about the end of his life. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus 
called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. What's interesting about that passage is it tells us about the very moment that Jesus died. And in that very moment, at that very time, what happened that day was that Jesus finished the saving work God had intended. You see, in that moment, we understand that our punishment was rolled away. That there's a picture that tells us about that and a proclamation that it's over. First of all, our punishment was rolled away. For you and I, who had turned our back on God, what was the punishment that you and I deserved for our sin? Death, right? Now, when we talk about death, we're not just talking about physical death because we still experience that unless the Lord tarries His coming. But we're talking about eternal separation from God in a place that we call hell. And so in that moment, He was literally standing in the place of us paying punishment for our sin. There is a beautiful picture, not only that our punishment was taken away, but that we now have access to God. Because it says that when the sun stopped shining, that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now the curtain of the temple was that place that, that, that kind of differentiated or divided the regular people or the priest from the very holy of holies, the very place of God. And in Jesus' death, the symbolism is that the curtain is completely torn from top to bottom. And as a result, you and I have direct access to the Father now through Him. Now, it's not only that picture, but there's this settling in what he says. He says, into your hands I commit my spirit. In another place, the last words he says, or the words that he says around this time, is the words, it is finished. I've already mentioned Southside Baptist Church once this morning, but almost exactly four years ago, February 29, 2004, we had the funeral service for my granny Nell my mom's mom, at Southside Baptist Church. And you know what was an interesting thing about that funeral? Is my father, my my grandfather, Gramps, wanted a specific song played at the end of her service. And it wasn't a normal funeral song. It wasn't Amazing Grace. It wasn't It Is Well With My Soul. He wanted at the end of her service the song It Is Finished played. Now, I'll be honest with you, some of my family thought that was a strange choice for the ending of a funeral service. But as the pianist who had been the pianist at Southside Baptist Church since I went there, which we had no longer been there since I was about five years old, since I'd been attending regularly there for as long as anybody can remember, began to play It Is Finished, I thought about the beauty of the fact that my grandmother was now in a place where her Savior, who finished the work for her, could say to her about her life's labor, it is finished because of what I accomplished on the cross. It's over. The battle is done. My grandmother suffered with rheumatoid arthritis. She suffered with dementia. She suffered with with a variety of illnesses. And in that moment, it was finished for her. But it would never have been finished for her there unless it was finished for Christ in the Scripture. 
Let me tell you, I don't know what you try to do to get rid of your sin, to get rid of your problems, to get rid of anything. But if you're not trusting in Jesus and His blood and what He did on the cross, then you are trusting in the wrong place. Now here's the last thing He did, and this won't be found right here, but it's understood throughout Scripture, is that He set an example for us. Luke 23 through 24 says, He told them what they could expect of themselves. This is the message paraphrase. Anyone who intends to come to me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Maybe you ought to read that again. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Sacrifice is the way, my way, to finding yourself your true self. Now, most of us know that verse better as... Anyone wants to follow me, he must daily take up his cross and follow me. But the truth is, what he says there is self-sacrifice is the way. And the example Jesus sets for us is that we must ask God, what does he require of us to live for him? And a disciple who doesn't understand that is going to ask, how much can I get out of this life? A follower of Jesus that doesn't understand this is going to ask, how much can I get out of this church? How much can I get out of my Sunday school class? How much can I get out of the sermons that are being preached? How much can I get out of the music that's being played? How much can I get out of the ministry? The true disciple that understands what God is calling them to do doesn't ask, how much can I get? They ask, how much can I give? How much can I give to this church? How much can I give? And not in the question of, let me divide it up and find out. It is, how much can I give? How much can I give to my Sunday school class? How much can I give to the music ministry of this church? How much can I give to a particular ministry? How much can I give to kids? How much can I give to the, the work that we have? How much can I give to the vision God has for this place? How much can I give? Because what Jesus did on the cross is, in fulfilling God's perfect plan and finishing the work of salvation, He also showed us how we ought to live for God. And that's asking how much we can give. This morning, I don't know where you are, and I know it's been a little bit of a different service. We did the Lord's Supper in the beginning, not at the end. We've not sung as much as a congregation as we normally do. But this morning, we wanted to change it up a little bit to make us think about these issues a little more intently. And in just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. And maybe this morning, as we were singing about the blood of Christ, you were reminded again of, of how important it is to trust in the blood of Christ to save you. Maybe in this discussion of the blood of Christ and Christ washing you clean, you realize that you've never taken that step. Or maybe you've taken it recently, but you've not made it public. And this morning is the time that you're wanting to do that. Perhaps this morning, this service has just been a reminder to you of the love of Christ. And as we talked at the end about how much you could give, you realize that there's something you should give to this church, to this ministry, to your Savior. And so in just a moment, we're going to have a time of invitation. And I would just ask that if the Lord leads you this morning for whatever reason to come and to ask Him to be your Savior, to come and let people know that, to come and want to join in what we're doing in this church, to come and just to tell Him you're going to give Him some more. I would just ask you this morning to just follow God's leadership in your heart and be obedient to Him. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray this morning that we would be reminded again of Your great love and Your great mercy. How that we don't get what we deserve because of Your blood on the cross. And Lord, we thank You in this week before we celebrate Easter when we have stopped and remembered the cross and what You did for us. When we have taken time to observe the Lord's Supper and be reminded again of Your great love and mercy and of the beauty of that moment. And this morning, Lord, I pray for people all across this room that are having those moments of doubts or wondering or questioning or, Lord, those that know that You're calling them to something and they're just a little hesitant, Lord, that You would just speak to their heart this morning. And, Lord, that You would allow this moment to be a time when they would come and they would give their heart to You. They would come and they would commit their lives to You. That they would come and say, this is where You're calling me to work. Lord, that You would allow them to have the courage to obey. Lord, you won't let distractions or anything outside of this place get in the way. But this morning, it will be your will that is done in this place. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand. And again, if the Lord's leading, I'm going to ask you to come. I know we've got the table up here, but we'll be here. Tom will be here. I'll be here. And we'll be here to receive you as you come this morning. Would you stand? If the Lord leads, you come this morning. Have you been to the cross where the Lord Jesus suffered? Have you been to Calvary? Have you been to the place of redemption for sinners? Have you been to It was there on Calvary, God's Son laid down His life for you. While there's time, don't delay, place your faith in Christ Jesus, turn your You can search, you can buy, and try everything man-made, but it cannot satisfy. It is Christ, only Christ, who gives life more abundant, and He calls from It was there on Calvary, God's dear Son laid down His life for you. While there's time, don't delay, place your faith in Christ Jesus, turn your to Calvary. Amen. Turn our eyes to Calvary. To the faith, the fact that God has given His life for us in His Son, Jesus.
I'm going to ask those that are giving or taking up the offering to go ahead and make their way forward this morning. We're about to receive our offering. I want to remind you real quickly, it is time for the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. We've been collecting that. That's an important offering for North American missions and would ask you to ask God what He would have you to give, to ask how much can I give to that and be aware of that. Also, I want you to know that the offertory is going to be a little bit different today as you sit down. You're not going to hear music being played here. It's going to be a video. Because the truth is that as much as we like to talk about the cross, that the cross is not the end of the story. Amen? And then next Sunday is a day when we celebrate the risen Savior. And a few years ago, and many of you probably heard the story or are familiar with it, of the African-American preacher that stood up one day and began a sermon simply by talking about it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. And so this morning, as we have been reminded of the cross and what happened in that week ahead, I just want us to be reminded again of the fact that even though Jesus died on that cross on Calvary on Friday, Sunday was right around the corner. Amen? And so this morning, as the offering is taken, I want you to just watch this video and watch and see how important it is to remember that Sunday's coming. I'm going to ask the ones going to lead us in our prayer to come forward. And as they lead us, we'll take our offering. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. Today we've been reminded once again about how that love took the form of Jesus Christ dying on the cross that we might have life. And Father, as we enter into this week preparing for Easter, I pray that every day as you give us opportunity, we will share the love of Christ with others. That they will be able to tell through what we say and through how we live out our lives that there's more to this Easter season than than just new clothes or Easter eggs or Easter egg hunts or bunnies. But Father, it's about you. It's about love. Love on a cross and love in an empty tomb and love in our hearts. And Father, now we enter into this time of our worship, which is a time of giving. And and Father, I pray that as we give, we'll give with our hearts. And we'll give because of the love that you have for us. The love you've given us through your Son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter's asleep. Judas is betraying. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like Sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter is denying. But they don't know that Sundays are coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scars. They crown him with thorns. But they don't know that Sundays are coming. It's Friday. 
see Jesus walking to Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, and his spirit's burden. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world's winning. People are sinning. And evil's grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nailed my Savior's hands to the cross. They nailed my Savior's feet to the cross. And then they raised him up next to criminals. It's Friday. But let me tell you something. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. And the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. But they don't know. It's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. He's hanging on the